From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at how Milwaukee could decide the 2024 election. We'll learn about efforts to simplify the reentry process from prison. I started to realize that Milwaukee has a fair amount, almost an abundance of reentry resources. But the problem is they're all siloed and nobody speaks to one another. Plus, we'll explore the history of the iconic Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. It started back in 1936, and that was during the Great Depression. And so they started it to bring smiles to people's lives and joy when it was such a hard time. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. The 2024 election is looming large over Wisconsin, which many consider a bellwether state for the presidential election. But one city in particular could decide the fate of the presidency and our nation. Milwaukee is the largest and most diverse city in Wisconsin, and although it has reliably voted for Democratic candidates in the past, the power of that voting bloc has dwindled in recent years. Dan Simmons is a local journalist who recently wrote about this for The New Republic. He joins me now to talk about it. Dan, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Of course, happy to be here. What makes Milwaukee so crucial to the 2024 election? It's Wisconsin's biggest city and thus has the most votes up for grabs of any city. And it has an interesting mix of what is thought to be the most reliable Democratic voters, Black voters. And so you've got a big pool of voters up for grabs. And the Democrats have sort of been able to um, count on overwhelming support from those voters And if anything about that equation changes, their statewide equation really changes, too, just because of the razor-thin nature of most elections in Wisconsin and the huge swings that can happen to that equation if even, you know, a sliver of that support erodes either through not showing up to vote or crossing over to the Republicans. One of the things I found surprising about your piece is really the inroads that the GOP Republicans have made into the black community in a variety of ways. What are some of the ways that they are uh, reaching out to black Milwaukeeans with their message? They run ads on uh, traditionally black radio stations. They set up shop uh, with a couple of field offices in the central city, which north side, I think there's one on the south side too. I believe there are two. So there's at least a storefront um, with you know GOP signage and some events to kind of acquaint people not used to seeing any presence from the GOP with the brand and the message. To be honest, I visited the field office on the north side a number of times and saw very, very little activity. Um, it was it was hardly open. I've seen this office. It's over by Pete's, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it looks it looks like no one's ever there, which is pretty accurate. Uh, 
I was kind of amused to go there on the day of the GOP debate when sort of the eyes of the political universe were on Milwaukee and I couldn't find anyone to talk to for the first hour or two. And then the the one person who did show up wasn't interested in talking to a reporter, which is fine, um, but also didn't alert me to any events or activity happening there, which you'd think would be a logical day of all days to gin up some support in that neighborhood. And yet it seems like they have ginned up some support. Uh, you spoke with a couple of men from a barbershop just down the street from that office uh, who who. I don't know if they both seemed like they were definitely going to vote Republican, but one of the maybe more surprising things, I think, for readers, listeners, I I think we assume this kind of attitude toward Trump specifically from the black community that uh, wasn't necessarily borne out in your reporting. Quite the opposite. The folks I talk to, especially men and particularly younger men, are sort of unfazed by the less attractive sides of Trump, which was a surprise to me, but is borne out in polling, both nationally and here, that they're they're just sort of take him or leave him, but not as reliably put off by him and his his history, his policies, his antics as people, if I went to the, the inner ring suburbs, I'd find a lot more animosity and disapproval than I did right in the central city, which was very surprising. One of the things that uh, surprised me about one of the conversations you had was they mentioned some tangible measures of what they viewed as success from the Trump administration. Uh, specifically the uh, stimulus checks that came during the COVID-19 pandemic, which I remember Trump fought quite hard to have his name on. And it seems like, to some extent, that's been helpful. In my reporting, that was a masterstroke by Trump, whether he intended it or not. Both people I talked to in Milwaukee, and then I'm seeing a lot of national stories about the black vote And that is the thing that keeps coming up in conversations is when we needed a hand up from the government, he delivered these checks. And one of the barbers I talked to, it was just a matter of who delivered. And in his view, Trump delivered on those stimulus checks and allowed the barbershop to keep paying its employees. And Biden hasn't delivered on student loan forgiveness, which obviously he acknowledged he tried. But for him, it's just a, what have you done for me? And in that binary choice, Trump delivered the stimulus checks and Biden has not delivered the student loan forgiveness. He, he still has some loans from uh, his trade school days. Now, one of the things that your piece looks at, aside from the inroads that the Republican Party has made into the black community, because I think if we look at that as a larger trend, it's pretty small, the number of people who are really switching parties, it seems. But the number of people who are participating in elections, that is pretty troubling. What are some of the trends that we've seen in Wisconsin when when it comes to voter participation in general? 
the trends are that majority black wards in Milwaukee, especially on the north side, their overall numbers have declined starting in about 2016 from a peak in 2012, which was President Obama's second election. And Milwaukee's overall share of the state Democratic vote keeps getting smaller. And these aren't seismic changes. These are these are rather small, one, two, three percent changes. But the trend lines are sort of going in a wrong direction if you're a Democratic strategist. Well, it seems like they're going in the wrong direction if you're someone who believes in democracy to some extent, uh, because it seems like we're having less and less participation in elections, which regardless of your party, you should want people to vote. Absolutely. But there, there's also more to this story, especially in a state like Wisconsin. One of the things that struck me uh, was a uh, factoid that you had. I'm going to quote this exactly. In 1996, Wisconsin ranked fourth in the nation for ease of voting, according to the Cost of Voting Index. But by 2022, the state dropped to 47th on that same list. What accounts for that change? What kind of roadblocks have we seen that have emerged for for voters on Election Day and (laughs) before? A big thing is confusion. There are voting measures put forward by the legislature and then challenged in the courts, and one court will uphold it, one court will overturn it, and it's this kind of back-and-forth ping-pong that just creates confusion, except for the people who you know cover it day in and day out. So if you're a regular voter, do I need to bring a voter ID to the polls? Or can I vote by mail? And what are the dates I need to have the ballots in? What are the requirements? All the kind of finer points of who gets to vote, what requirements there are to vote, where do I vote? All these things have been in kind of a constant state of flux and such that people are confused by the whole process especially with a lot of decisions coming in the weeks and even days before elections, you can't keep up with it all. And some people just throw up their hands. And then the other is just actual changes that have happened. One big one is needing an ID to vote, whether at the polls or by mail, early voting. And then the legality of drop boxes. Those are two concrete changes that have happened in Wisconsin that have caused confusion and caused some people either not to show up at all or to not be able to vote when they do show up because they weren't aware of these changes. So as we look ahead to 2024, what are the challenges facing both uh, voting in general and also uh, Democrats who have long held a majority in the city but are are slowly losing that. So the enthusiasm isn't there for the Democrats. People I talk to who are still going to vote for President Biden aren't doing so enthusiastically. And one of the national experts I talked to spoke to enthusiasm being not only your enthusiasm to vote, but your enthusiasm to get your friends and family and your network to vote. If the people who are voting are doing so sort of holding their nose, they're not about to really rally others in their circles to vote. 
So that that's a problem, I think, for both Democrats and Republicans. No one's excited about this election. No one's excited about the candidates. It, it's a just a grinded out turnout election, and whoever can get the most of their supporters out is going to win, and it might be a low turnout affair looking at how things are shaping up now. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Thanks, Joy. Dan Simmons is a local freelance writer whose piece on Milwaukee's impact on the 2024 election was recently featured by The New Republic. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 20 minutes, we'll get an inside look at the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile and share some fun facts about the vehicle's history. But first, we'll learn about an effort to make resources more accessible to people re-entering society from prison. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. After being convicted of murder in the 1990s at the age of 15, Adam Procell was sentenced to life in prison. He was paroled in 2018 and has since spent his life addressing issues with the re-entry system. This started by working directly with formerly incarcerated people to help them navigate the system. Procell has since branched into reentry services to make it easier to navigate for people re-entering society after prison, working to build trust between formerly incarcerated people and police. Purcell joins Lake Effect Sam Woods to talk about his work, starting with how he felt re-entering society after prison. When I began my journey inside, and I, I say this kind of laughing, but I had a pager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people obviously really don't use pagers yeah, anymore unless you're a, an a ER doctor. a while ago, yeah. And there was no internet as we know it. I lived with my mom. She did my laundry. Because I, I was a kid. Yeah. And I essentially just had to understand what does it mean to be an adult, mm. a law-abiding adult in a society. And thankfully, and I, I give a lot of credit to somebody that a lot of people in my space wouldn't want to credit, but my supervision agent gave me just time to breathe. Mm. She didn't force me into getting a job the, the week that I got out. She didn't force me into a lot of different things. She said, you, you don't even understand what it feels like to be free as an adult, so just take some time. Thankfully, I was blessed with a family that created a soft landing spot when I returned home. And so I didn't have to search for a home. I had residence. I didn't have to search for transportation. I was allowed to use the family car. And so that I was just given an opportunity to breathe and understand, like, what does it feel like to be an adult? And I know that sounds odd to say. No, yeah. But the first, I would say, day, I'm not usually what to describe this, but it was terrible. 
as crazy as that sounds, because being released from prison should be and was one of the most joyous occasions of my life. But the pressure within that first 24 hours, it was almost painful. I remember sitting at the kitchen table in my grandmother's house and feeling to myself that this is terrible because the, the pressure in my chest from just the, the amount of emotion that I was feeling, it made it uncomfortable. Again, not to say that it was a bad thing, but it just at that moment was like, this is terrible. I, I feel so uncomfortable right now because I'm being flooded with emotion. The second day, it got much better, and then mm -hmm. following that, it, it got a lot better. But that first 24 hours, it was really a, I don't want to use the word negative to prelude the word experience, but it wasn't pleasant, as, as unusual as that sounds. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like a, you know, a shock to the system and a shock to, you know, you at that point, um, you know, spent most of your life in prison and grown up from the age of, you know, from your teen years to this point. And so, yeah, I mean, I can under, you understand the kind of like, yes, I should be feeling, and it was, you know, joyous, but at the same time, like, well, okay, what do I, what now? Like, what right. do I do now? But in that time since 2018 and that initial shock, I think it's fair to say that you found your, you're, you're finding your way. Uh, you wear, you wear a, a lot of hats. You teach at Marquette University. You work with Partners in Hope, Paradigm Shift, as well as Home to Stay. And so I know that's a lot of hats. And so I'm going to give you, <laughs> I want to, I'll yes. let you, I'll let you kind of describe where, how all those hats intersect and how they're informed by that, um, by that past experience, particularly with the reentry process. Yes, it's, it's always difficult to sort of manage the hats, yeah. at least in explanation form. But via timeline, I would begin with Partners in Hope because I was actually interviewed for that job in a prison visiting room mm. in 2018, a month before I was released. My then CEO got permission from the warden to conduct a job interview in the prison visiting room because, as I was told by him, they were forming a program called Partners in Hope, and it's a faith-based prisoner reintegration organization. And he said, I'm just some white guy from Indiana that has zero street cred. Nobody's going to hear anything mm -hmm. I have to say. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for individuals that understand what change looks like and can help others transition successfully back into the community. And so that's sort of where my journey into the reentry space began, really actually before I even stepped foot into society. And when I got to Milwaukee, I started to realize that Milwaukee has a fair amount, almost an abundance of reentry resources. But the problem is they're all siloed and nobody speaks to one another. And we essentially have to rely on a supervision agent to one, know of their existence, two, have the time, and three, have the hope that an individual that is being released has the ability to get to wherever this resource is because they're all over the city. And so that kind of transitioned into one of the next steps or next hats, if you will, of home to stay, where we, we decided, okay, how can we, how can we maximize effectiveness when it comes to connecting individuals that are reentering society with the resources that they need? So we thought, well, what if we brought 30, 40 reentry service providers into one location? And so once a month, usually the first Wednesday of every month from noon to 2 at 324 West North Avenue, we conduct home-to-stay reentry resource fairs where we do just that. We bring in roughly 35 to 40 
reentry service providers, employers, and people that just want to help people succeed. And we get a lot of individuals that are on supervision that come at the behest of their, their agent. And a lot of times they'll meet their agent and con conduct those weekly or monthly supervision meetings literally in the space where so many of their rentry resource needs can be met. So we are located on a bus line because that's another issue that we've we found to be yeah. a, a huge barrier. A lot of individuals don't have transportation. And so if you have a resource that's completely on the other side of town that's nowhere near a, a bus line. You're not getting to it. You're not, I can be the best resource in the world, but nobody's going to be able to get to it. So we are on a major bus line, which people really don't think about that, but that's that's hugely important. Mm -hmm. On this on this topic of having a one-stop shop for reentry services, I know I know a lot of people who have either worked in nonprofits or social services or have tried to navigate social service systems that um, this feeling of everything being siloed that you're talking about is going to be very familiar. But from your experience with reentry, what difference would it have made to have just kind of everything in one place as opposed to, I'm guessing, kind of having to go over to this side of town for this, for, you know, employment resources and this other side of town for um, housing resources, and et cetera. What difference would it have made to have all of that just in one spot as you're trying to do here with Home to Stay? I think the easiest way to understand this is, and this is no excuse, it's more of a reality check to the situation. If it is difficult to essentially change the way you live your life, people are going to fail. Mm -hmm. For a lot of those in society, it isn't a big deal to go get a social security card. It isn't a big deal to go get a bank account. It isn't a big deal to go sign up for health care. But if you've never done any of those things, and as soon as you get out, you have to go do all those things, you don't have a car, you don't know where any of them are at, it starts to feel overwhelming. And again, this is not an excuse. But we have to understand that, okay, if we don't change the way we think, if we don't meet people where they are, we're just going to keep ending up in the same cycle. And so if it is too difficult for somebody to completely rearrange their life, they go back to what's comfortable, what they know. And unfortunately, oftentimes, that's a criminal lifestyle. And so we have to find a way to make change attainable. And right now, it's not. Yeah. I, th I think there's um, some folks who hear that and say, well, I made it without all this help. Um, I figured it out. And so, you know, as part of reentering society you should be able to as well. Um, you, you mentioned the necessity of having compassion and meeting someone where they're at when they're re-entering society, but can you talk more about just like how not be meeting people where they're at kind of sets people up for failure when it comes to re-entering society? Sure. A way I try to explain that is if someone asked you to solve this equation, some math equation, and you never had a math teacher that taught you these things, well, how would you solve that math problem? Mm -hmm. You just assume that everybody has been given these same resources as they grew up. So if you don't understand how to solve a particular math problem, what do you do at that point? You need to solve it. Right. And so if I'm at that point where I don't have the skills, I don't have the knowledge to solve that math problem, well, then I'm not going to try to solve it. I'm going to go do something else. Mm. So going back to successfully reacclimating to a non-criminal lifestyle, if that's the quote-unquote answer to the problem, I can't do it. I just don't have the skills or tools necessary, well, then I'm not going to be that. Mm -hmm. And so we need to find a way to understand it's not about minimizing. It's not about giving people a free pass. 
when people make mistakes, myself included, we do need to be held responsible. But we can't unring that bell. And so now we're at the point where 95% of the people that are in prison one day get out. That's just, that's just a fact. Right. If these individuals are releasing, and they are, how can we ensure, how can we maximize them becoming who you want them to become, your neighbor, somebody that's going to stand next to you in the grocery line, whatever it is, we need to give them the tools. And so me just saying, do better, or yeah. don't do this, or I did it, you can too. Well, that how's that working out for us? It's not. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to take a different approach. And then so in this effort that you have with, you know, Partners in Hope, Paradigm Shift, Home to Stay, all these um, all these uh, entities, you it seems like you're trying to build towards that different approach. But I'm, I'm guessing that there are barriers to that work, whether it be political or power struggle barriers or, or funding barriers. I'm sure it's not just, you know, you just say what you said to me right now and then it just like clicks for everyone, right? right? So <laughs> I wish it were um, that easy. Yeah. So while doing this work and wearing all the hats that you do wear, what kind of barriers are you encountering when it comes to either changing minds or changing policy? Yeah, that's, that's one of the more grueling aspects of this work. But the work itself is already grueling. Yeah. And then it seems like we're f- fighting half of the people that want people to successfully reintegrate back into our society. Mm-hmm. A lot of people within the reentry space want to point the finger in the eye of the system and tell the system, you suck. And at the end of the day, I think people lose sight of the system isn't some boogeyman in the corner. It's The system is run by humans. And when a human gets a finger stuck in their eye, they really don't react positively. And so the system buckles, the system bristles, rather. And when the system bristles... I feel people in the reentry space, especially those with lived experience, don't necessarily have a voice. And so we take a completely different approach. We reach out to the system and say, we understand that you, you cannot do this by yourself. We can't do it by ourselves. So let's find a way to collaboratively work together. And one of those areas that we really lean into is with law enforcement. And I know a lot of individuals, especially those getting out of prison really don't want to interact with police officers. Yeah, understandably. And yeah, I, I, I get that. Police officers are often looked at as the representation of authority. And if your mindset is authority doesn't like me, it's just a little bit easier to buck authority, i.e. commit crimes, go against it. So we bring in police officers and we have them lean in with love to those that are just getting out of prison and become mentors, believe it or not, to those that are getting out of prison. And when you have a police officer, i.e. the system, leaning into you with love, compassion, and a hand saying, how can I help you succeed? You don't want to let that system, i.e. authority, down. By default, subconsciously, you're really not wanting to commit a crime without even realizing it, which is all fine and well, but a lot of people within this reentry space kind of look at me like, ah, oh, you're working with the police. We, we don't like them, so therefore... We don't necessarily like you because you're part of them. Yeah. So you mentioned a, a lack of trust between uh, from people who are reentering society from prison um, towards police officers, and how your role is often to kind of break down barriers and rebuild trust from a, from a, from the bottom up. Um, between these two parties and I'm curious if you also have like what kind of work you have to do on the other side for law enforcement or 
other, you know, either law enforcement or just people in society generally who also don't really trust someone who's just coming from prison. Absolutely. And sometimes I don't know which is harder <laughs> yeah. to help those getting out of prison understand that an officer is human or to help an officer understand that somebody who has committed a very violent act that they literally spend a career trying to get off of the streets is now becoming potentially their neighbor. And again, back to us taking an approach of let's work with the system. I think that has allowed me access to, well, in fact, I know it has, where officers are trained at the police academy and given the opportunity to have sessions, given the opportunity to humanize those like myself who had made mistakes, helping them understand that, yes, you put handcuffs on somebody, but if they are allowed back into our society, why that can essentially make your job easier, safer, if we look at each other as human. One of the most pivotal things that we do is traffic stop etiquette at Partners in Hope, where we reverse the roles. We have those that just got out of prison become the officers, and we have the police officers become the driver. So each can understand the mindset of the other, and we rerun them through various scenarios. And our guys and girls get shot every single time. And it's not that we're sadists or want our returning citizens to be shot, but we want them to understand what's going on in the mindset of an officer during one of these traffic stops. Conversely, we want officers to understand if somebody's on parole for a long time and they think they're going back to prison for the rest of their life because of the way an officer's acting, well, that might put that officer's life in danger. Again, no excuse. So we really want to help each understand the mindset of the other. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on Lake Effect and um, spending your time with me and, and uh, telling us about all the, all, the, all, the, all the work you're doing and, and all the trust that you're building out there. Thanks, sir. I appreciate it. Adam Purcell is a reentry strategist working in a variety of roles with partners in Hope, Paradigm Shift, and Home to Stay. He spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods in August. And we want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lake effect. Our final segment today is all about Oscar Mayer Wiener. In about 15 minutes, we'll tell you about the Wisconsin origins of the jingle we all know and love, the Oscar Mayer Wiener song. The Wiener song is identified as one of the longest running, most important advertising jingles in the advertising business. But its origin story is just remarkably simple, and that's what makes it a great story. But first, meet the drivers behind the famous Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Do you ever wish you were an Oscar Mayer wiener? Well, you can be. Kinda. You could be part of the lucky few who become hot doggers, the people who drive the iconic wienermobile across the country. 
Lake Effect's expert Nunez spoke to hot doggers Emily Schmidt and Brady Schroeder to learn more about their unique job and what it takes to drive the wiener-shaped car. But first, Excret is joining me to share why she wanted to learn more about the hot doggers. Excret, what is it about the Wienermobile that piqued your curiosity? You know, Joy, it's not something I grew up knowing about. The Wienermobile was something I learned later in college. I had a, a college roommate, a college friend who was actually a hot dogger herself. And so that's where I got to learn a lot about the Wienermobile. And so it, it was something that just became normalized to me. And so I started to think, okay, I know the Wienermobiles in town. How many people really know about this unique shaped car? <laughs> so I thought, you know, why not interview the people who, you know, live the life of a hot dogger? So I reached out to them and thought, let's ask them a few questions about the Wienermobile that maybe some people here in Wisconsin might want to know. For sure. Uh, we we actually all took a bit of a field trip out to the Wienermobile itself. And uh, something that we learned about Excret is that uh, you have done something that I think very few people can lay claim to. <laughs> you have been inside of now three different Wienermobiles. <laughs> there are multiple Wienermobile vehicles, and you've been in three. That is true. <laughs> that is a true <laughs> fact. Um, so there are six Oscar Mayer Wienermobiles out there in the world, and I've been in half of them so far. The one we were able to visit is called Yummy. I've been in Oh, I Wish, and Weenie is the other car <laughs> I've been in. I've just been fortunate enough um, because of my hot dogger roommate from a couple of years ago that I've been able to ride in two of them, and now this one. So now I guess it's an, a bucket list item <laughs> for me to go on the rest of the three. For sure. Well, let's all learn a bit more about the Hot Doggers and this truly iconic vehicle. It's almost been six months since you guys hit the road. Mm -hmm. How many states have you been to and how many miles have you traveled? Yeah, so we've been to 10 states so far, and I think we're rounding up to 20,000 miles on the road so far. Wow. Mm -hmm. What's it like driving this massive hot dog car? That's a great question. I feel as though every day is a wonderful day, a wonderful day, I should say. Everyone's always smiling at you, waving at you on the road, lots of honks. Yeah, and so you're with like one other partner for six months of this job. It's a one-year position, and then you switch to a different partner. So Brady and I are actually about to leave each other, which is pretty sad. Yeah, that's Brady crying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so it's really interesting getting to know someone like that and then really working with them very closely to like make these really special moments in the Wienermobile. And so like you're always kind of on when you're in the hot dog because – even if you're driving, you know, on the highway, people want to see a wave from the front seat. It was a learning curve for both of us, but it's it's really just a joyful experience all around to drive something like this. Do you ever get used to those waves and those honks and like the attention? There's funny moments in the Wienermobile where you're so involved in the conversation you're having or something and you're, you know, throwing waves out and everyone is meaningful. But we'll like see our shadow over to the right. And that's a moment where you're reminded, like, oh, yeah, I am driving the 27-foot-long hot dog. And yeah. it puts you back into kind of the driver's seat more so than you are. Yeah, and anytime we meet someone who hasn't seen it before, hasn't seen it in a really long time, I think that kind of shocks us back into, like, oh, while this seems pretty normal to us because it's my everyday, this is really special to everyone else who sees us. 
That is really special to think about. Um, You're both working this one-of-a-kind role. Walk me through how someone can become a hot dogger like you guys. Absolutely. So during our time in the second half of the job, so starting about January, we'll be doing a college tour. So we'll be going to different universities across the country. So people are able to go to info sessions to find out more about that. We also have online applications, which is how our friend Emily got the job. How did you feel like this was your calling? Yeah, I think for me, I did a lot of student activities in college. And so I was the trivia host at my college. And then I was also the president of our improv group. And so I've always sort of been used to like being up on stage and kind of having like a crowd or like leading events and things like that. And so I think event planning and like event coordination was something I wanted in my job. And then to be honest, like since we just graduated, I wasn't really looking. I didn't really need to find a city that to settle down yet. And so the opportunity to travel for a year, have the joy, have the events. I mean, it's also kind of a fun thing to be able to say that you drove the Wienermobile. That wasn't my sole motivation, but it was kind of like, this is an American icon. I feel like I should put my name in this pool. And if I don't hear back, nothing lost. But if I do hear back, a lot gained. Tell me a little bit of your day-to-day of what it looks like to be a hot dogger. Day-to-day being a hot dogger, we wake up. <laughs> Every day we get to go to really fun events. So that involves going to grocery stores, parades, festivals. So we're driving to and from. When we set up, we have normally games that people can play. They get to do tours of the vehicle. We give out our very special weenie whistles whenever they come by. So it's really a lot of joy making and us hanging out together to make fun experiences for other people. How many hot doggers are chosen? How many people have this opportunity to do what you guys are doing? Yes. So there are 12 hot doggers on the road at one time. And so we are the 36th class of hot doggers. And so there have actually been less than 500 people who have ever driven the Wienermobile. My favorite fact is more people have been to space than have driven the Wienermobile is my favorite fun fact. Yeah. (laughs) Favorite fun fact, Brady? Would you care to guess how long the vehicle is in hot dogs, a standard (laughs) hot dog length? (laughs) <laughs> um, 100 hot dogs. Oh, that's a great guess. You're on the right side of the scale. It's 60 hot dogs long. Mm-hmm. How many hot dogs high, Emily? 24 hot dogs high. I'd love to think about someone actually going out there and doing that themselves. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And you know someone did no, at yeah. one point. So you got the gig. Tell me about the hot dog high program. Oh, yeah. What is it and what do you get to learn there? Hot dog high is the most excellent two weeks of the year. You get to meet 11 new friends. Uh, You spend time learning how to talk about the job. You learn how to handle events, handle crowds, uh, and most importantly, possibly, learn how to drive the Wienermobile. Um, (laughs) But really, it's such a great time to just get to know the rest of the people on the team. We're all, you know, around the same age and have the same interests, and it's it's really a blast. Aside from learning how to drive the Wienermobile, what's, Mm -hmm. like, the most interesting thing that you've learned um, Mm -hmm. at Hot Dog High? I think the history of the Wienermobile is something that I wasn't personally aware of, but it started back in 1936, and that was during the Great Depression. And so they started it to bring smiles to people's lives and joy when it was such a hard time. And I think learning that history really helped like cement the idea of what we were doing now. Another amazing part of it is that anytime we go to an event and it's someone's first time, like mm-hmm. they have never seen and never even heard of it, it's the same smile. So it's like, cre- mm-hmm. you know you're creating that nostalgia for people that they will then talk about forever. That's a really nice way to put it. 
tell me a little bit about driving the Wienermobile itself. Do you need a special license to drive it? Mm. You do, yeah. You need an HDL, you know. A hot dog license? Oh, uh, Brady's just making jokes. You actually don't <laughs> need a special license. So, yeah, it's just under the limits of needing a bigger license or something like that. Another Wienermobile question, how do you wash it? We actually go to fire stations a lot of the time because they're really used to cleaning big vehicles. And we'll pull up and say, any chance we could clean our buns here? And we'll give them wiener whistles <laughs> and stuff like that and let them climb inside and everything. But you can also go to a truck wash. A little bit less fun, but still works, which is good. The, the smiles on the workers' faces at the truck wash is yeah. also awesome. Like going from, you know, semi to semi and then Wienermobile pops up, everyone in there is just like looking at yeah. each other. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. Like, are you seeing this too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, since you get to learn a little bit about the history of the Wienermobile, has the car changed over the years? It has. It's gone through many iterations. I think there were versions in 36, 40, 52, 58, 69, so on and so forth. So every time they've gone through iterations, uh, they've added features, they've taken away features. But the vehicles basically stay the same since the the dawn of the Wienermobile program in 1988. Yeah, so like I think it's the 95 version. That's when they started keeping the same shell of every Wienermobile. And then about every 10 years, they'll get a new engine, a new frame, and like new tires and everything. So it's completely refitted, but that means the shape of the Wienermobile stays the same since the 90s. So, um, but we have like updated technology in terms of like GPS and Bluetooth and all that stuff. So Backup camera. Backup camera, yeah. The first Wienermobile, you had to stick your head out the top to be able to see. So <laughs> I'm glad we don't have to do that nowadays. Oh my gosh. Um, I guess any cool features with this, other than the backup camera, any cool features with the Wienermobile? The jingle horn. Uh, yes, that's the a jingle really good horn. The jingle horn is a button that we have on the on our dashboard where anytime we're passing people, maybe on like street corners, whatever, tap the jingle horn. Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. We'll play, which is really fun. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> What's a memory that you most relish Ooh. about this whole experience? <laughs> My favorite memory was doing the Chicago Pride Parade for a crowd of about 45,000 people, really maybe more. That was the official number they gave us, but Emily's on top of the vehicle putting on an absolute show for, <laughs> for all passerbys. And, you know, people had hoses out. She had fans. It was just an incredible experience. And, like, for that to be our second week on the job, yeah, it was just, like, it's insane to see the impact that this has and what a community can do for my spirit and what a vehicle like this can do for a community. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a really good answer. This is actually Milwaukee. We um, were staying downtown, and this woman came by, and she was like, oh, my gosh, I love the Wienermobile. And I was like, thank you, like, welcome in, you know, all this stuff. And she was like, I'm actually getting married this weekend. And I was like, are you really? Where are you getting married? She was like, right around the corner. And I was like, would you want us to stop by or something like that? And because I wanted to – I didn't want to be like, you need the Wienermobile at your wedding. She was like, <laughs> we would love that. And so we arranged it, and we stopped by, and we took her and the groom, like, on a little ride. And then we parked outside and they took their like a couple wedding pictures outside the Wienermobile. And so it was just it was just so fun because it was like it was very random and not something we necessarily had to do. But I was like, this is easy for us to do. Let's let's do this for this couple. And then hopefully they'll have those pictures for a really long time. And it's something I'll always remember. You know, we love seeing like special events and stuff like that. So that yeah. sounds really special. I mean, like it sounds it sounds fun that this is kind of just comes with the job, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You if if you want to make things happen in the job, then things can happen for you, which is really nice. Like you can make someone's day. And I I don't know 
a lot of other jobs that allow you to do that pretty easily. You know, like we just pull up somewhere and it's the work is kind of done for us, which is really nice, you know. Oh, well, Emily and Brady, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about your wonderful job. Uh, thank oh, you. <laughs> Emily Schmidt and Brady Schroeder are hot doggers, people who drive the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. They spoke with Lake Effect's Excret Nunez. Now, we can't talk about Oscar Mayer Wiener or the Wienermobile without talking about the jingle. Oh, I'd love to be an Oscar Mayer Wiener. That is what I truly like to be. It has become so ubiquitously known that there are few of us who can't hum along. And it's not just known, it's beloved. Well, it all started here in Wisconsin. And the Wisconsin Historical Society has a piece of that history the banjo ukulele on which the song was composed. Joe Kapler is the lead curator with the Wisconsin Historical Society, and he joins me to share more. I'd like to just dig into what, what's really at the center of this story, the Oscar Mayer Wiener jingle. It's probably one of the best-known jingles in history. How did it come to be written? Like a lot of great stories in history, and, and it's true, the Wiener song is identified as one of the longest-running, most important advertising jingles in the advertising business. But its origin story is just remarkably simple, and that's what makes it a great story. Richard Trent Loggy was a he was an ad man in Chicago and had spent years in the business working for some of the big firms and, and started his own firm called Adversonic. They worked on advertising campaigns, but especially in the jingle end of things, because Richard was naturally musically inclined. He had a way with words and a way with crafting melodies. One afternoon, Richard gets a frantic call from his business partner at Adversonic and says, hey, J. Walter Thompson, which was then the largest ad company in the country, they are soliciting jingle pitches for Oscar Mayer out of Madison, Wisconsin. I asked Richard, can you crank something out? And it's due by 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Uh, okay, you know, it's kind of a tall order. Oscar Mayer uh, had a major presence in Chicago. It was founded in Chicago. Richard actually worked at an Oscar Mayer facility in Chicago as a, a young man. So he had a familiarity with the company and a familiarity with the product. And it didn't take him very long to land on kind of the opening hook, oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. So it didn't really take him that long that afternoon to come up with most of the lyrics and the really cute, catchy, hooky melody. Later that uh, evening, had the kids uh, at dinner <laughs> learn the lyrics. His kids, David and Linda, who were 10 and 9 at that time. And then his wife, uh, Vivian, could play stand-up bass. And they worked it through that evening and cranked out a demo tape in-house, at home, that simple, with the family, done in hours. Drops it off the next day at J. Walter Thompson and then never hears a thing, forgets all about it. Over a year later, Richard hears, uh, hey, congratulations, you're the finalist. Uh, you've been selected. And uh, we would like to be able to record, uh, professionally record the jingle, and please bring your talent with you. My kids? 
you know, that's that was the talent. So, you know, kind of a, a really charming folksy start to it. Interestingly, his instrument of choice was kind of unusual, was the uh, banjo ukulele. Can you tell us a little bit about this instrument, which is now in the Wisconsin Historical um, Museum? The reason the Wisconsin Historical Society knows so much about the origin story and the importance of the Oscar Mayer Wiener song is that the society now possesses and shares the instrument on which the Oscar Mayer Wiener jingle was worked through, was written, was crafted, and ultimately recorded. And that's called a banjo ukulele. So a banjo body and a ukulele head. And instrument that became popular in the 1920s and 1930s in the United States as Hawaiian music became popular during that era. So it's a, it is a simple instrument, and it would be the right tool, so to speak, for working through creating jingles, creating hooky little songs. So in 2009, Richard Trentlagi donated to the Stork Society here, of course, with Oscar Meyer being uh, headquartered out of Madison for nearly 100 years, appropriate home for it. And it's a very popular piece in our collection, as you might imagine, because of the nostalgia and the memories that it conjures up for so many people. And it was there at home, it was there in the studio, and it's those notes played on that simple little instrument that have been heard by millions and millions and millions of people since 1963. Well, that gets to uh, this idea of the legacy of this song. Of course, it was on air for decades. What would you say is the legacy of what's affectionately called the Wiener Song? A legacy of the Wiener Song is one of those crystal examples where the power of message can move a lot of products, but sometimes they move into the popular culture. And in the 1960s, when this came out, radio stations were receiving all kinds of requests to play that again as if it were a hit song. But it's a commercial. You know, bands requested the music, high school bands, marching bands played it. It just it just went viral before we use that term. So a legacy of that and why that persisted over the decades is because it was the right type of jingle for the right type of product. There is a warmth to it that people still connect, whether they like hot dogs or they dislike hot dogs. All right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing this story. You're very welcome. Our pleasure. Joe Kapler is the lead curator with the Wisconsin Historical Society, and we spoke last year. You can check out the banjo ukulele at the Wisconsin Historical Museum in Madison. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley recaps the last year of his tenure and what's ahead. That's tomorrow at noon right here on Lake Effect on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. PR.